0: That to me is quintessential to life in general. Like You should never feel constrained to enjoy something that is specific to whatever, whether that be your culture, your gender, anything. Um, You should definitely be open to trying and open to enjoying whatever it is that you like.
1: Hi everyone, welcome to Gin and Beer. I am Meg, and this week I'm very excited to be joined by Ebby from the at Ebby Dranks Instagram, which is how I came across him. Thanks so much, Ebby, for joining.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: And Ebby and I are going to be talking today about the Monkey Gland cocktail. This is Abby's choice that I'm very excited about because it's got a fun history. But Abby also has a really great Instagram that I came across uh, recently with amazing cocktail photography, really nicely done photos, and just really exciting recipes. So I thought first we could kick off by just talking a bit about you as a cocktail maker, Abby, and how you got into it and just a little bit about yourself. So welcome to the show.
0: Sure, sure. Thank you so much for having me. I uh, recently got into the whole art side of cocktails. Um, I have always liked drinking like most adults have, but recently I got into the whole photography side of things. I upgraded a lot of camera stuff and kind of changed my nerd game a little bit. So I started taking great pictures from a corner of my home bar, and when I started the whole Instagram thing, I thought it was definitely going to be a catalog just for myself to know what I want to make the next day to drink. But somehow it started catching more eyes, and it slowly grew to where it is now, and now I have a blast almost every day posting a random cocktail that I come by or pop into my head and it's been super fun. Um, I have about 150 to 160 cocktails that I've posted so far. Um, I have no plans on slowing down, which is good. Um, And it's definitely grown. Like one day, maybe it'll be something bigger than a random dude coming up with weird drinks. But as of right now, it's, (laughs) it's gotten pretty fun.
1: Yeah, and I, I, think that's, I think that's great when something, like you said, I've, I feel like that's such a common theme with people on Instagram, or to be honest, even with my, my podcast, when you just start something and with the intention of it just kind of being a personal journal and a bit of a passion project, but you don't ever really intend for it to be big with other people and then it just kind of takes off. So I think that's really great that that's where your account has gone.
0: Yeah, Exactly.
1: So, all right, so I'm going to dive into some get-to-know-you questions from a drinking perspective. Um, So to start off, easy one, what is your favorite drink, if you have just one?
0: Sure. I would have to say a good whiskey sour. Um, I've -hmm. had a lot of bad whiskey sours, and that turns off so many people, but... if if you get a really good one with good quality whiskey and I'm an egg white fan. So for me as a purist, you got to have the egg white in there. Um, and if it has a good foam and good flavor, it's going to be one of the best cocktails that you've ever had.
1: Yeah, I have to, I have to totally agree. I, so I, there's just something about the egg white that always skeeved me off and kind of put me off of ordering whiskey set because I'm a huge whiskey fan, um, like scotch, bourbon, pretty much anything. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. The egg white just – I'm not – you know, it, it, it's not even like a food safety thing I'm concerned about. I guess I just like didn't I, – well, I guess part of it is that I actually don't really like egg whites like food-wise very much. Sure. I usually – if I like go for brunch, I usually eat the yolk and then my boyfriend finishes off the egg white. So I think that must be like <laughs> – what put me off. And then recently, like during lockdown, I made myself a whiskey sour. And I was like, I don't, I have been missing out on so much. It's so good. Like you said, if it's made properly, it's with like fresh lemon juice with the egg white. I love the Angostura bitters on top. It is just a very, very solid drink.
0: I agree. And recently, I really like using egg whites in all sorts of sours and cocktails. Um, I, You can take a lot of classic cocktails like the Anzoni throw in an egg white, do a good dry shake, and it really does add a new dimension to the cocktail.
1: Yeah, I, I completely, completely agree. There's pretty much endless possibilities with, with the egg white, and they also, are, it makes it look so much prettier. It's so nice photographing the, the drinks with the nice yeah, egg white definitely.
0: Head. <laughs> totally agree.
1: So the next question, what was your first alcoholic drink that you can remember that, like, stuck with you?
0: I remember being, I think I was about 10 or 12 years old, and this was such a stupid story, but I remember opening up my dad's fridge, and he had a random beer sitting on the side of the door, and I opened it up, I took a sip, and I thought it was the worst thing That I've ever tasted in my entire (laughs) life. And being a dumb 10-year-old kid, I didn't realize that once you open a can of beer, it's pretty obvious to an adult especially that the can of beer is now open. So I put it back in the fridge in the same spot, open. My dad comes home and looks at it and just looks at me and thinks that I am the dumbest human in the history (laughs) of humanity. Thinking I could get away with opening and taking a sip of a beer, and I don't think I drank another beer for probably, I don't know, probably close to ten years because I thought it was gross. That was the the lasting impression that alcohol and beer had on me for quite a while. But granted, I was a child. But...
1: Oh yeah, no, I I can totally relate to that. I didn't sneak any, but I think my parents made the very calculated decision because you know when you're a kid and your parents will like let you like for my parents it wasn't even a sip they'd let me like dip my finger in something so they'd let me like dip my finger in their wine um which is actually, like, now that I think about it, pretty gross. But they <laughs> they let me try a little bit of, um, it was, like, a, a German, like, wheat beer. So that's, like, a, an acquired taste. And as a oh, kid, yeah. same thing, completely put me off beer, like, completely. Like, it was, like you said, probably a good 10 years until I would even consider trying it again. So I can definitely <laughs> relate to that.
0: Yeah, that was a painful experience. <laughs>
1: Well, I'm glad that you eventually overcame it.
0: I did. I definitely did.
1: So speaking on kind of similar lines, is there a drink that you used to love maybe when you were younger, but now you absolutely cannot touch it?
0: I don't know why, but maybe it's because I've recently done more of the whole cocktail thing, but your standard well drinks have lost some of its appeal, especially the whiskey ones, so... Like a Jack and Coke used to be my go-to when I was in college. Uh, I could sip on that and have a fantastic time, and maybe it's because I've had way too many of them back then, but it lost some of its luster. And now I prefer it either straight or in a nicer drink, but the whole mixing with Coke has kind of died for me a little bit.
1: Yeah. No, that's a, that's a really good point. I think, I mean, I couldn't, I could not tell you the last time, cause I was exactly the same. Jack and Diet Coke was my, was my drink in college. I thought I was so cool. Um, and <laughs> I, 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 could not tell you the last time that I would have ordered that, but I, I mean, I will say like, if I was, I mean, I do still occasionally in pubs, I'll just get like a a well gin and tonic, but I I think that a Jack and and Coke is actually, if you're somewhere that it's just really dodgy and you're like, I doubt that no matter what, you know, beer, wine, spirits, no matter what I order, it's not going to be great here. Um, You're in some sort of like roadside hole in the wall. I feel like a Jack and Coke is actually probably one of the safer options because hopefully, unless you're just getting swindled, you know you're getting Jack Daniels and you know you're getting Coke. Whereas if you order like a gin and tonic, you have no idea what gin you're getting and you have no idea what tonic you're getting. Um, So yeah, I haven't, God, I haven't even thought about Jack and Cokes in a while because I I really did used to love them. But yeah, I agree with you. And I do think like I had one a couple years ago in London and it like the first sip, I literally just felt like I was back in college. It it, it triggered like every sensory memory.
0: Nostalgia mania, I'm sure.
1: Exactly. So what is your most unpopular drink opinion? That can either be something that you love that everyone seems to hate or something that you hate that everyone seems to love.
0: I like Amaretto Sours. I think <laughs> I think they're delicious. And uh, it's another one that I prefer with an egg white again. Um, but there's something about them that puts a lot of people off. Maybe it's the sweetness or the artificially kind of taste of the amaretto itself. But if you find a nice bottle of amaretto and you balance the flavors out a little bit, it's a great drink and I love them. And I don't care if it's not the manliest drink on the planet, that never bothered me. Like pink drinks, <laughs> flowers, umbrellas. You can give me all of that stuff. It, I throw it into my cocktails. I put it on my Instagram, never bothered me one bit. So, an amaretto sour is right up my alley.
1: I honestly don't think I've had one since college, and I don't think it was a particularly memorable one, but I, I would absolutely be willing to try one again. Uh, I think, and I think I have some amaretto in, in my bar cart, but yeah, I do agree with you. Like, all you do if you try to limit, if you have like fragile masculinity when it comes to drinking, is just <laughs> limit yourself from things that are really delicious. So, exactly. You gotta just cash in that man card and it's it's this I mean I'm the same way with beer like I will like I like I don't I have very few female friends that kind of enjoy beer the way that I do and it probably is a bit manly but it's I also just love beer so and
0: there's nothing wrong with that there's a there was a cocktail writer that I uh, talked to recently who wrote a book called drink what you want and that to me, is quintessential to life in general. Like You should never feel constrained to enjoy something that is specific to whatever, whether that be your culture, your gender, anything. Um, You should definitely be open to trying and open to enjoying whatever it is that you like.
1: I couldn't agree more. It's it's such good advice, and it's so freeing as well. Like, you just can't. Uh, I think I had, I don't know if you follow Alex from um, Cocktail Creation UK on Instagram. If you don't, he's got a great account, but he came on the show about a month ago, and he, he said exactly that, and he was just like, look, even when it comes to cocktails, like, even if it's not really well balanced or maybe the ingredients aren't super fr- if you think it tastes good then just enjoy it and and don't worry about exactly about any that, other about any other nonsense
0: yeah that's all that really matters cuz if you don't enjoy it and you're making it then why drink it
1: yeah and it's all, like it i think the best cocktails are probably made when people are breaking the quote unquote rules as well um you know, for example, I mean, I'm not saying this is one of the best cocktails or even innovative, but me and my parents, like for the longest time, um, our our drink of choice when we went out was a Maker's Mark Manhattan on the rocks, which most people would absolutely slap you for ordering a <laughs> Manhattan with bourbon instead of rye whiskey. And then on top of that, putting it on the rocks. But we just like the taste of it. My dad actually, I think he actually does prefer rye in his Manhattans now, but he still yeah. drinks them on the rocks. Um, but yeah, sometimes you just have to break the rules to find what you like.
0: Definitely. And I, I'm a rocks guy too, to be fair. I sip on bourbon and even scotch. I know people get angry with me when I do it, but I, I get a large piece of ice and I like to sip it that way. There's something about sipping it at a cooler temperature like that. That's always been more enjoyable for me. Um, I, it mellows some of that harshness away. And
1: oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. My, my mom is a complete scotch connoisseur, and she, she drinks it with ice. She says that the ice opens it up, which I think is kind of true. It just makes it more palatable.
0: Agreed, definitely.
1: So if you could make, sorry, if you could have anyone make you a drink, who would it be?
0: Oof. Basically every bartender from Death & Company.
1: Yes, That, that's, that that's bar a good one.
0: is phenomenal. I have both the Death & Company uh, book and the Cocktail Codex, which a lot of the same people wrote and put together. They are so, so good at what they do. A lot of the inspiration that I've had for my Instagram account has come from those books. Um, and everybody that they use in... Uh, in those recipe books and everything, they have the best skills in the cocktail world, in my opinion. And they have a few locations now. There's uh, one in California, one in New York, and there's one in Denver. And I know that they've all been kind of struggling and closed down because of COVID and regulations and everything. But hopefully once they do open up and we're able to move around a little bit more freely, I'd love to check out those locations and have them make me a drink.
1: Oh, absolutely! I I couldn't agree more, and I I've definitely noticed the same in London. Um, we a lot of stuff is starting to open up, but a lot of the really high end cocktail bars, um, like Mr. Lion has Lioness um, in mm-hmm. Central London, which is known to be one of like the best cocktail bars in the world. And I I've been fortunate enough to have gone there pre before COVID, but I think they're not they, we started opening bars and restaurants on the 4th of July. And I think they're finally opening in like the next couple of weeks. I've noticed a lot of the, the cocktail bars are a bit slower to open for understandable reasons. But yeah, I I can't wait to be able to go to some of these places.
0: That sounds, yeah, it's going to be, I'm sure for everybody a little bit more, almost cathartic, like to be able to enjoy that drink again and kind of find a way to wind down and Try to have some sense of normalcy.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's just a, a bonding experience as well. For sure. Especially at
0: a nice place like that. Like there's the lighting and the intimacy and all of that definitely adds to the vibe. And in my opinion, adds to the cocktail drinking experience too.
1: Oh, absolutely. It's a whole like sensory experience. No, I completely agree. Yeah. Um, Da- everything from like the music they choose and like you said the lighting and just all the different smells and everything and you know the places that will kind of put the bartenders on display so you get to watch them do their thing it's all yeah. it's all part of it that we've all been lacking during lockdown
0: right yeah bartenders on display with their handlebar mustaches and bow ties which i appreciate very much
1: yeah exactly so how um, how did you get into, you touched on it a bit earlier, but how exactly did you get into cocktails? Like, are you entirely self-taught? You just sort of realized you had this passion for cocktails and started reading up on it and watching YouTube videos, or what is your background there?
0: Yeah, I, I am self-taught. I watched a ton of YouTube, tons. And so The Educated Barfly, Steve the Bartender, uh, cocktail chemistry. These were the people that I watched initially that showed how to be able to make pretty much anything at home with the ingredients that you'd be able to pick up from your local liquor store. So I figured, why do I need to spend 10 to $15 on a drink when I could probably make that at home? Maybe it wouldn't taste exactly the same. And then I started refining what I did and tweaking and adjusting and learning my palate better um, just to be making cocktails that I knew that I would appreciate. And as that kind of came together, the drink side of things became easier for me to see. I guess it's like being a cook. You can, you kind of know what ingredients would work well together when you're throwing stuff together to make dinner. Um, so cocktails in, in a certain way kind of work similarly. You know which things pair well together and you can go out of the mold and adjust and tweak and do things like that too. And then once I got that understanding down a little bit better, that's when I started to improve my garnishing abilities um, because I feel like especially from an Instagram perspective, you're not able to taste what it is that people are making, but you visually appreciate it. So finding ways to make it look pretty and garnish appropriately and help that garnish tell a story is really important.
1: Oh yeah, I couldn't agree more. That That's definitely an area that I am constantly trying to improve on is my garnishing and, and just my my drink photography in general um you know my my instagram is primarily to promote the podcast but i obviously post pictures of drinks and yeah it is i mean it the, it makes what what you and and some of the, my other you know instagram pals that have come on the podcast it it makes it so much more impressive because drink photography is extremely difficult um i personally i think it's a lot more difficult than food photography because you're i feel like you're dealing with the elements a lot more um, you know, just in terms of like condensation on the glass and just getting the lighting just right so that you can see all of the garnish and see how the ice is sitting. And um, it's it's very, it's very challenging.
0: Yeah. It, nearly every single cocktail that I've posted, I've probably taken 20 to 30 pictures and different angles and adjusting the lighting and doing all of that. It is rapidly filling up Memory cards and phones and all sorts of stuff, just trying to get things just right. Um, part of that is probably me being super ultra picky too, but even simple things like when you're using a flower uh, as a garnish, you can take a picture in a million different ways, and just moving a couple millimeters, you're going to get a totally different profile of that flower. And then it's how does that flower play with the cocktail and the ice and the glass and everything else? It's it's slightly more complicated than I thought originally, but um, it's super enjoyable for me to do to kind of dance around my bar and look like a doofus, which is why I'm glad I don't (laughs) typically, I don't post a lot of videos. Uh, I typically just put the picture up there and be satisfied with it. Because if anybody actually watched me do what I do, they would think I was the weirdest dude ever. There's a a colossal difference between being like a home bartender or mixologist versus a professional that works at a bar. Um, The people that work at a specific location, they are much more talented than what I do they are able to make drinks efficiently, get them out to their customers quickly. Me, on the other hand, I can make a cocktail relatively fast, and then I'm sitting around garnishing for 10 to 15 minutes, and that's not something somebody at a bar is going to have the patience for, at least more than once. So I'm awkwardly bending around my bar at home, getting the lighting and, checking angles and this and that. And nobody outside of the people that I know very closely would have the patience for something that ridiculous.
1: No, I, I totally, I totally get that. I had a, a small get together. Some friends are moving back to America from London, um, like a month ago. And, you know, I, I probably made like six people Drink, you know, like it was a round of espresso martinis, actually. I remember it. And I was, you know, it just like Kahlua flying all over the place and, you know, Cocoa Potter here and there. I was like, I, so in in summary, tip your bartenders people because they are like a million different professions in one. They're therapists, they're performers, they're absolutely mixologists. Um, Yeah, it's tough. And it's, yeah, I'm, I feel quite quite cozy having gotten into it in the comfort of my own home, but I have a whole other level of respect for people who do it as a profession. Oh, yeah,
0: yeah. Especially now, like knowing how tough the restaurant industry and that whole service has kind of been suffering because of restrictions and all of that, which I understand why they're there and they are beneficial, but at the same time, it's, it's tough for people out there
1: Oh ab- absolutely definitely so um, one more question and then we will we will move into the monkey gland just sure. on the photography do you have any sort of photography background like formal training or were you also that was just another passion that you kind of self-taught and practice yourself
0: i I did teach myself a lot of it I took one photography class in college and had a blast it was super fun the it was more basic photography, so I was using film cameras at the time. But mm-hmm. getting an understanding from a film perspective helps a lot when you upgrade yourself to a digital SLR. Um, so I, I figured out a lot of little things, and uh, it's been good. The, I would say to somebody that's starting off that wants to do any kind of photography, whether that be food or drink or landscape or portrait, get yourself a good tripod. Um, it's an underappreciated yep. device that really drastically improves your your image quality. And even if you're shooting with your phone, which a lot of people do just because phone cameras have upgraded so, so much recently, especially, get a tripod for that too. You'd be surprised how much a steady surface like that would help improve your image quality.
1: Oh, definitely. Definitely, yeah. No, I um, I I similar. I I took a basic photography class in high school. Same thing. It was just film. All I really remember it from it is the rule of thirds. Um, but yeah, it, it's amazing. It's amazing. Just uh, when I was in that class, the only option if you wanted to be serious about digital photography was a DSLR. And now it's it's crazy that people have like, you know, profitable. Instagram photography accounts that were there taking all of those photos on their smartphone it's just crazy right. how much things have changed
0: yeah I know a lot of people that do that actually and their pictures are still great there's no I wouldn't knock them or anything like that for using their phone instead of using an SLR but um, it's it's nice to be able to do both um, if you're oh, wanting, if you're yeah. wanting to get into photography definitely take advantage of whatever you have. Um, a DSLR is not for everybody cause it can get expensive and that's for sure. Um, I used, when I first started getting into photography in general, I used my dad's old Canon 10 D, which I think we ended up flipping to upgrade at some point, but I, I want to say it was probably 200 bucks for that camera. And it didn't have a lot of the high-end specs and all that, but it was great for me to learn from and understand aperture and shutter speed and ISO and some of the more basic stuff. And now I use a 5D Mark IV. I'm still a Canon guy. Um, I love that camera. It works great. It's full frame. And I want to say about a year ago, I spoiled myself and got a Leica M9P which is super, super fun to play with. It's a different style of camera. It's a range finder. So it uh, has a nice digital screen and all that, but the way it's, everything is full manual. So it takes a little bit oh, more,
1: nice.
0: takes a little bit more understanding of photography to get really good at it. Um, I'm not that great with it, obviously, <laughs> but at this point, but I want to continue to improve. Um, but everything from, the fine adjust on the lens, to the aperture, to the shutter speed, and the ISO, all of that is going to be completely dependent on you. Um, so it's it, it the world is definitely um, what you want to make of it with that camera, but it's a lot trickier to to understand than a t- typical standard SLR.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. that That sounds awesome. That's just a cool way of changing things up as well.
0: Mm-hmm. For sure.
1: All right. So let's get into the topic of the day. Your chosen cocktail was the monkey gland.
0: Yes. Super weird so, drink with a super weird story.
1: Yes, no, I'm, I, I actually, I love this choice. So for those of you who have not had the pleasure of trying, or have not heard of the monkey gland, the recipe is, um, at least the recipe that I'm aware of is two ounces of gin, one ounce of fresh orange juice, half an ounce of grenadine, and then you rinse the glass that you're serving it in with absinthe. You can either rinse it or you can use a atomizer, um, shake it all up, pour it into the glass, and add a twist of orange. So that is the – it's a very interesting drink. Um, I think it's the first drink that I've come across that's l- like gin and orange juice um, that isn't just
0: Beside like Snoop Dogg. A, a yeah. gin and
1: juice, yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly, um, like a proper – Cocktail, but um, as as Abby said, extremely bizarre history. So, do you want to walk us through that history of it, Abby, yeah, and what you what you know about it?
0: So, so back in France in the 1920s and 1930s, there was a physician, and his name was Sergei Voronov, and he thought that the reason men after the age of 70 had a rapid decline in their health, well-being, activity level, all of that, was because of a decrease in their testosterone levels. And to fix that, he decided that if you were able to increase your testosterone, your medical problems would just suddenly disappear. So his solution was to transplant the testicles of monkeys into older men. And theoretically, that would help boost their testosterone levels. And they're suddenly, I don't know what, more virile, but moving around, doing things more healthier, blah, blah, blah. And he did this in France for about 20 years, which is insane. Um, and then by the 1940s, so people, it was kind of debunked. Yeah.
1: Cause, cause I, yeah, cause I, I absolutely read about that, but what I didn't, what I didn't really look up is like, obviously, I mean, set the, the helping the testosterone situation aside, did people survive this operation or were these men just dropping dead because they had you know, <laughs> a foreign animal body Gross infections. Inserted?
0: Yeah. Uh, I don't know if people like died relatively quickly, but. I'm sure graft-versus-host disease and a bunch of other problems ended up happening to these people. But uh, as far as I could tell, there were some people that did survive, and I don't know if it's some sort of funky placebo effect or not, but they they told him that they felt better than they did before the surgery. But (laughs) after about 20 years of collecting this information, the rest of the medical community... Basically told him to stop putting monkey balls into old men.
1: Fair enough. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, so when I made this cocktail for my Instagram, I the traditional garnish. You're you're right. Is with the peel. I decided to go for something that was a little bit more reverent to the story. So I used a, a little toothpick to pierce two nice sized olives and i balanced <laughs> i balanced that on the edge of the cocktail glass just to give it a more testically effect which i felt it's more like was
1: historically accurate right, that way right <laughs> right and
0: that's you know if i'm not a good cocktail historian then what
1: am i exactly no i'm i'm here for it <laughs> <laughs> yeah
0: so that was yeah it's the one of the weirder cocktails that i've had and that i've had a chance to make but the story was just way too good to to not
1: yeah and no i i completely agree and as far as the actual history behind the drink goes so from what i read um as is with basically every other (laughs) cocktail that i've ever researched there are two men who claim to have created it um so the first was harry mackalhoney McElhone mm-hmm. of uh, Harry's New York bar in Paris one of the most um famous bars in the world and he's also the man who claims to have created the sidecar and then a man called Frank Meyer of the Ritz in Paris so it came out in Paris during prohibition um right. so in the 1920s when drinking in the U.S. was basically illegal and apparently people were I, I you know all this time as a kid, that I learned about prohibition, and uh, my great grandmother made bathtub gin with her sister Good for during her. prohibition and stuff. So yeah, exactly. So I'm, I've, I've like heard even like you know family accounts of prohibition. It never occurred to me that people would have like you know gone on vacation or like gone and moved to Europe or something just for the sake of. Being, Being able, able to, to have go a somewhere drink. where alcohol was legal, yeah, yeah. but I'm sure that it, that happened, and they 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 said that basically people flocked to Paris in droves, um, and this is one of the cocktails that was um, that was quite notable that they wrote about. But there's no real, there's no real explanation of why it was called the monkey gland maybe it was just because that that procedure was all the rage in in france at that time as well
0: maybe and they just wanted to honor that fantastic procedure
1: yeah and i'm i'm so glad that it's now immortalized in this cocktail
0: that's right that's right there's a lot of cool cocktails though that are kind of like that they're just named after somebody and it's not like it was their go-to drink um, like the Lucien Godin, like that's a super classic uh, Negroni riff, more or less. And mm-hmm. uh, named after the French uh, fencer from, I want to say the 1920s Olympics. like. But it was just chosen to be named after him. Um, there wasn't like a really good reason. It wasn't like it was his favorite cocktail or anything like that. And now it's immortalized and everybody that knows that cocktail, kind of knows who that's named after. But yeah, I mean, it's kind of weird. And this, this just took it to another level because this is just so random.
1: Yeah, it really is. Cocktail naming is a complete art in and of itself, honestly. Like, I feel like if you owned a bar... You could, you know, at like a craft cocktail bar where you really took pride in your cocktails. You could hire someone whose entire job would be just to name the cocktails oh, on your yeah. menu for Absolutely. you. Absolutely,
0: it is so hard. Like for me on my page, I would say fifty percent of the cocktails are remakes, um, and a good chunk of them are classic cocktails. And there's a few that I've had the opportunity to make and name myself, and. Those are always so much more challenging because I have to look at the ingredients. Like, do I want to be boring and call it something that's just a compilation of all of the ingredients in there? Or do I want to try to come up with a cool story or something to tie it all in together? And it's not the easiest thing in the world. For me, writing everything takes more time than the actual making of the cocktail and garnishing it and picking glassware and all of that. Um, So if I'm having to come up with a name on top of that process, it makes it much trickier.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, even when I do, um, I do on like Instagram TV on Thursdays, I do thirsty Thursdays with just like very poor men's, you know, drink making tutorials. It, the, honestly, making the drink is like the easiest part of the process. Oh yeah,
0: <laughs> like,
1: 100%. Deciding what drink to make and, you know, what what ingredients to use and the, uh, then, you know, doing the photographing for the thumbnail. And then if I, you know, I read somewhere after the first or second one that I did that like 99% of people, I don't think it's that many, but a huge percentage of people watch Instagram videos on mute, which I definitely do. And so they say like, you always want to do closed captions So now I would close caption it, but that is a whole process. And yeah, it, it's a, no, I think anything involving involving like posting cocktail art (laughs) the actual making of the cocktail is pretty much the easiest part
0: exactly yeah definitely I you know I haven't listened to or watched YouTube on mute and now that you say it I'm like wow maybe I should try that because sometimes there's a whole lot of banter that's going on that I'm not necessarily wanting or needing to hear when it's like cocktail research hour for myself but I don't know that's that's an interesting approach. That's something that I would see if I liked.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, it's definitely worth the try. I also, I think that I'm definitely a visual learner um, in the sense that, like, I mean, visual in the sense that watching the video and seeing someone do something, I'm learning from that. But then also reading what they're saying, I think that also really helps me retain yeah. things as well. Um, just because it's kind of, in a way, it's kind of passing through your brain twice, I suppose. Yeah, but, that's true. So when you made the monkey gland, did you, did you just rinse the glass in absinthe or did you use an atomizer to spritz it?
0: I had an atomizer and, uh, totally, I, in my opinion, both ways work. Um, I like using an atomizer for all sorts of stuff. And I picked one up from my local liquor store for $4. It's not crazy expensive or anything like that. And you you could, Quickly and easily change out whatever it is that you want to spray. Um, so in mine, I've used all sorts of bitters and absinthe, and it's it's helpful. I would say.
1: Yeah, I definitely I need to get one. I went because I basically got into. I mean, kind of similar to you said. Of course, I've always loved drinking, um, probably a little too much. But I yeah. got into. Cocktail making and mixology, and and just the whole process of it. Um, basically, during lockdown, I think as so many people did. Yeah, for um, sure. And same same as you, like Steve the bartender, educated barfly, how to drink. Just watched all of those obsessively. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the beginning, it was just like the focus was just you know stocking my bar with just like good workhorse spirits. And ingredients and, you know, making sure I had a decent mixing tin and bar spoon and all of that. And now I've kind of graduated to pimping out with the stuff that is not, like, required. So, um, last week I got myself a bitters dasher. So, put all nice. of my bitters in a nice little dasher. Yeah, which is also just, like, very visually appealing sitting on your bar cart versus just all the bottles of Angostura and everything. Yeah, true um, that. But, yeah, I, did, I think a next step would be an atomizer because, like you said, they're not expensive, but it's just such a nice way to elevate a drink.
0: Yeah, and it's especially useful when you're using it to garnish your cocktails. So if you're using an atomizer to spray um, Angostura bitters or Peychaud's bitters over your cocktail, that evenness is visually very nice Um in photography and videos, things like that, so you get to appreciate that more from an atomizer than you would if you try to do something by hand.
1: Oh, definitely, definitely. Yeah, no. When I when I dash, like on a whiskey sour, when I dash Angostura bitters, I always just have to kind of fiddle with you know a, a toothpick or a bar pick because the the initial dashing, I'm like, this does not look pretty. <laughs> <to> kind of <laughs> exactly,
0: the same thing happens to me art. too. <laughs> Yeah, it's um, it's more like a Roshark test, a blot test after I initially try to make hearts or something on my whiskey sour.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I, I watched, um, shortly before we started recording this actually, I watched Steve the bartender's um, tutorial of making a monkey gland. And it was interesting because he used an atomizer when he first made it. But his first, he did caveat by saying that he's not a huge fan of orange juice in drinks, Mm. which is funny because, um, I, let's put it this way. I don't think I reach for drinks that have orange juice in them very often, but I don't dislike orange juice. And you know what I mean? Like I'm not, Yeah, I'm
0: kind of the same way. It's not my, yeah, yeah, it's not my go-to citrus agent, I guess. Like I love lemon, I love lime, and those two are probably the most common two. And I'd even say I probably use grapefruit these days more than I do orange. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I totally get that. I, yeah, I, I don't see a lot of cocktails that use orange juice. There, there's some tiki style stuff that that do, but outside of that, yeah, I was it's gonna say I feel like it thing. gets
1: it probably gets a bad rep as well from some of the the. I mean, not like authentic tiki, but just some of the less glamorous drinks that are associated with tiki yeah, right. um you know like the the punches and stuff that that's probably why yeah. but yeah he yeah so he said that he isn't a huge orange juice fan so when he first took a sip of it he liked it but he was like oh I'm not getting a lot of the the anise from The absinthe, and that was when he'd spritzed it. So he then put like a no. He actually he did he just spritzed it again, and then he was like, oh, with it being right on top, he's like that it's actually much more absinthe for it. But then he said he was like, sometime I'll try doing just like a bar spoon of absinthe. I'd be I'd be interested to make it make one with atomizing it and make one with just a bar spoon, like five milliliters of yeah, and um, just compare
0: the two. That would be really cool.
1: Yeah, exactly. Is yeah, I there think, a particular absinthe that you like to use?
0: There's the absente absinthe. That's the one that I've typically used just because it's the mm-hmm. most easily available one. Um, for some people, and I've heard this from a few uh, of my cocktail friends, they actually prefer the taste of Pernod over like an mm-hmm. absinthe, just because the you still get the anise flavors without necessarily being as... In your face about it, like absinthe is, um, and so they you can use a smidge more of Pernod in your cocktail and get some of that same effect.
1: Yeah, I think I think that is important because you do have to be. And this, I I actually I don't own any absinthe. I, I keep going and because I, well, if I went to a proper liquor store, I probably could find some, but none of the shops near me have it. Mm. Um, And, um, so I just, I keep putting it in my Amazon basket basically. And then just, and then kind of removing it and putting it back in just because, yeah, like I, like I definitely want to play with it in cocktails, but it also, it, it will just kick you on your ass. Um, if you put too much of it.
0: Right. It's, it's an interesting Both in terms of alcohol
1: content and flavor.
0: Yeah. I made myself an uh, absinthe frappe like a couple of months ago. I think I did that for my hundredth. Instagram post or something and I that had a good amount of absinthe in it I want to say it was close to two ounces worth and that was that was quite a bit if you're not a huge absinthe fan or a strong absinthe connoisseur and I'm definitely not uh that was <laughs> that was intense
1: yeah I bet it was although I don't know it sounds kind of good <laughs> I feel like I that's need. that's the thing
0: because the first it, What I tell a lot of people is the second sip of your cocktail, no matter what it is, is more important than the first. Because the first is like suddenly washing over your palate and hitting you and you don't know what you're going to taste first. You don't know what you're going to get. You can't pick up all of the individual flavors until you have that second sip. The second sip, you're kind of a little bit more prepared to taste it and then you can break it down further. And that to me really helps you understand the complexity of a lot of cocktails.
1: Yeah, that's, I've never really thought about it that way, but that's such a good point. Cause I also think like for me, I me, recently made a elderflower whiskey sour um, nice. and it was, it was good, but I, so it was, it was funny story. Um, this is just one of, you know, many, many mishaps that I have on a regular basis, but I, was making it, and I was making it with the egg white. And as I was cracking the egg white, I was like, oh... I was like, I was either supposed to put this in... First or last and like very specifically, and I can't remember the good reason for why and then of course I accidentally the yolk just like spilled into the mixing tin oh no. um, and I was I was doing it I was doing it last so all of my ingredients were were already in the tin yeah. and I was like, oh, it was first because of this exact thing, not ruining <laughs> all of the booze um so I binned it, but I was so set on making it that I just like made it made it over again and yeah. then you had could have made it, it fourth, exactly like you said <laughs> yeah like exactly like you said like the first sip i think because i'd put double the uh, literally double the effort into this drink because i had to effectively make it twice the first sip i was like oh this is great and then the sips after that i, I was actually like eh, the, it like it, it wasn't it definitely wasn't bad um yeah. And it also might have just been, because in my head, I was like, no drink is going to be worth the heartache that I've just been through to try and make this. <laughs> um, but it was, just, you know, it's just, I do, I agree with you. I think it it takes that second sip to actually drink something with a critical right. eye.
0: Yeah, definitely. And what you were saying about the egg whites, it's not the easiest thing in the world. Because, yeah, a lot of people do screw up, and I definitely have screwed up, dropping it in, getting yolk in there, things like that, or getting a little piece of shell. And you're like, oh, my God, i got to fish that out. But the one of the things that i've read from a lot of books like liquid intelligence they specifically say that you should always add the egg white last and i always wondered why but apparently you're increasing the likelihood of curdling or getting it to clump up in any way or not froth as well if the acidic stuff in your cocktail starts like to you, break
1: it down yeah
0: so then the less time you have with that I guess the better when it comes to building and creating your phone
1: no that that definitely makes sense and I actually think I had read that as well and had that and, and I think that's why I went to do it last but then I remembered that I think Leandro or someone on a video had said like, oh, do it, do it first that you don't (laughs) ruin your spirits. And I'm like, oh, you know, it's, I think it just, it's, it's a battle between your clumsiness and not wanting, you know, science to take over.
0: Right. And I don't trust myself. So I'm one of the clumsy doofuses. So what I always do is I break it into another container and separate my yolk and white. And that way I'm not dropping it directly into the cocktail shaker. Uh, And it's drastically reduced my idiocy in this one way by a lot because it's easier I think, to make sure I think that that's absolutely
1: separate. the smartest thing to do now I, I think yeah. I think that's I think that kind of just kills two birds with one stone
0: yeah for sure it's it's one of those things like one of my life mottos is I know what I know and I know what I don't know and Knowing what you don't know is significantly more important than knowing what you know. And in this micro situation, like, I know that I'm a clumsy idiot. And <laughs> if I can reduce my risk of showing the universe that I'm a clumsy idiot, then why not?
1: No, I think I, I like that a lot. I like that a lot. I'm going to start applying that to my own life. <laughs> nice um so I was thinking when I was when I was kind of prepping myself for this episode because I usually talk about variations and I don't uh, like of the monkey gland I don't know if you can really say because it it when you actually break it down it's it's kind of just like a basic sour um in terms of like the actual composition so I feel like you know It's kind of like there's no variations, but there's also like loads of variations that you could do, like pretty much infinite.
0: Right. And so for this one, I actually tweaked it a smidge from the original, which was the the build that you said kind of when we first started talking about this cocktail. I used two ounces of gin, one ounce of orange juice, a teaspoon of grenadine, and a teaspoon of simple syrup with my Dasher spritz of the absinthe. Um,
1: mm-hmm.
0: I, I, the sweetness that I got from the simple syrup kind of added to the, the natural like homemade effect of the grenadine. So I didn't feel like I needed as much of the grenadine cause I kind of super concentrated the pomegranate flavors when you make it yourself. Um, but that l- volume change just with a little bit of simple syrup balanced it pretty well.
1: Yeah, no, that that does sound that does sound really good. That actually brings up I have a question that I have to ask you because this yeah. has been this has been plaguing me. Um so I made my own grenadine and I use so I don't know if you have or have ever used Masterclass, um, but MasterClass has an amazing mixology course and they teach you how to make grenadine, but the recipe that they use is so, it's literally just um 100% pomegranate juice, demerara sugar and um some orange peels that you just let steep with it and mm-hmm. when you kind of bring it up to boil and then you just let it sit and cool down kind of like any other simple syrup. Um so that's the method that I used. I know that like Educated Barfly and some other ones I've seen, I think they use like a combination of pomegranate juice, which is usually fresh pressed and then pomegranate molasses. Um mm-hmm. So anyway, point. This is getting kind of unnecessarily long-winded. Point being that I didn't necessarily <laughs> use the the method that everyone else uses, but the problem that I've had with my grenadine, it tastes amazing. It because t- I think store-bought grenadine is disgusting. It's like gross. in every yeah in every possible form, I think it's disgusting. Um, so the grenadine that I made tastes amazing. Consistency seems great, but it is so like mine is not. It's, I don't know if it's like the brand of pomegranate juice. I. Use. It's nice, like 100% organic. They don't put any sugar or anything in it. But my grenadine is so like deep, dark purple, like not even red, yeah. like dark purple, that even though it tastes amazing, when I put it in anything like especially something like orange juice it basically turns it like poop brown like it just (laughs) makes it makes like it just like my my boyfriend used it because we we had like a a cocktail competition just the two of us at like the the deepest steps of lockdown and we weren't socializing with anyone else and uh and he made a I think he made tequila sunrise but he was just like your homemade grenadine has ruined my drink cuz it literally became this like pond color and I just yeah. don't know if this is my grenadine or if this is a problem that everyone has if you're using a homemade grenadine because it's it's so much it's not a red color it's so much darker
0: Yeah so for me I've I've read a lot of different ways to make your own grenadine the way that I did it is probably slightly different from most people I actually didn't use the molasses or pomegranate juice. I used a lot of um, fresh and frozen pomegranate seeds or kernels. Um, and I, I made... I, I did it the same way that I do a lot of my other syrups, where I'm building a simple syrup and then, some, like, flavoring the simple syrup with whatever. Um, so I did a standard simple syrup with probably two cups of... Um, pomegranate seeds and I muddled them while things were kind of simmering and I let that reduce and I strained it and it was still darker than like roses grenadine like what you see the artificial stuff being Um, Mm -hmm. but it's still got like a very very deep red color it's I wouldn't say purple quite yet it doesn't give the poop effect when mixed into <laughs> drinks, which I think Classic is important. poop effect. Yeah, you know, like your tequila poop rise is not going to be a very appetizing-sounding cocktail. But uh, the for whatever reason, I think it's some of the stuff in the juice that can make it darker, potentially. But when you're using
1: yeah. the fresh
0: stuff and just kind of mashing it down, like I, I used a little potato masher style thing to smash my kernels and make sure they all popped in the, in the syrup to release all of their juices. But once I did that, I felt like the, the color was pretty good. It darkens up a little bit more as it cools. Um, but definitely not purple.
1: All right, uh, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna try using your method then, and basically just making like a grenadine simple syrup because yeah, it it has to be it has to be the juice. But it, like, I'm I'm not even gonna lie to you. I had a a birthday party a couple weeks ago, um, where I made um, a tiki punch. I made a planter's punch that called for grenadine, and I just sucked it up and and bought the store bought stuff because I was like, even though even though my stuff is going to taste way better, if I stick a pitcher of this, like, pond scum on the table, (laughs) no one's going to drink it. Um, But I was like, in in the future, I really need to sort out this issue with my
0: credit The the other option is you get ceramic mugs, and then nobody has to see that it looks weird. So that's, that's like, one of the most challenging things to me. Um, I have really, really cool... uh, cocktail like tiki mugs that are ceramic and um, you can see like the crazy amount of effort and art that went into making and molding these but the problem is nobody can see the drink and if the purpose of what I do is to show off the drink itself and not just the really cool glassware it makes it hard for me to justify using it all the time if that makes any sense.
1: Oh uh, no! Absolutely, it completely makes sense, and I because I've been reading um, Martin Kate's Smuggler's Cove book. Um, yeah, because I have I, I have like book. an insane tiki obsession. Yeah, it's so good, and um, I I basically was in, like, towards the end where he's describing all of his syrups and, you know, just what uh, he was getting into, like, mugs and what he recommends for collecting them and stuff, because I've started kind of collecting them as well. Um, Mm -hmm. And the two things that he said, actually, this is just off topic, but interesting. The two things that he said, one... He said, if you're collecting tiki mugs from like the actual height of tiki back in, you know, in like the fifties and sixties, he said, like, leave those on your shelves for display and don't use them because a lot of those mugs were made before we had the regulations on lead that we have now. And some of them, like, especially if you were to use a drink that's, you know, really high in alcohol content and lots of citric acids and things like that, like you will end up getting lead in the drink, which is just kind of terrifying. Um... (laughs)
0: I mean I I've like I don't people, have are, people are dumb enough already it's not like they need the additional lead to prove the point
1: Oh tell me about it yeah exactly um that's that's exactly what the US needs at this point <laughs> um, <laughs> it, Yeah but uh but, yeah, I don't have any. Like, I wish I had some, like, old-school authentic tiki mm-hmm. mugs. Mine are all, like, very much present day, um, you know, probably made in some factory. But I just thought that was interesting. And then the other thing that he said is that they are, like, they are actually super useful for tiki because he's like, when you're making, if you're making your own, you know, grenadine and orza and falernum and all these different things, he's like, the the homemade versions of all of these different syrups and liqueurs they taste a lot better than what you're buying in store, which is great, but they might not look as pretty. And so he's like, you know, a lot of the... I mean, even if you look at a Mai Tai made properly without all of the, you know, grenadine and pineapple juice and stuff that places like to throw on them now, it's not the prettiest drink. It's kind of a weird color. No, Um, and that was
0: the same feeling I had. Recently, I made a Bahama Mama, which, in my opinion, is a really good tiki drink if made appropriately, and it's been like destroyed by people that I, I call it like the chain restaurant effect where it's, yeah. it's on it's on nearly like every crappy restaurant's menu and so everyone just associates it with that in the same way that the daiquiri has a bad rep because a lot of people associate it with the overly sugary frozen yeah. daiquiri rather than what it is from a purist perspective and uh It it changes your world completely when you make the cocktail with good, fresh ingredients and you make it yourself versus the artificial crap that a lot of people end up having for the first time and you associate that drink with a lesser quality than it deserves.
1: Exactly. No, I totally, I totally agree. So yeah, it seems to be a bit of a trade-off that the the fresher and more authentic and you know organic or whatever your ingredients are they might not they might not look that they might not have exactly that curb appeal but um yeah it's just it's just interesting well thank you so much this has been an absolute blast chatting to you I've really enjoyed this
0: me too thank you so much for having me on
1: and uh, is there anything that you'd like to plug? Like I said, your Instagram is at Dranks, and I personally highly recommend it. I've really enjoyed your photos recently.
0: Well, thank you. Yeah, that's really the only thing that I do from a social media perspective. Um, I may one day dabble into making a site or having other things going on. But as of right now, I've just been pretty much focusing on the Instagram page, and it's been good so far. I, I love it. It's been a blast. The cocktail community is awesome, especially on Instagram. It's super easy to connect with. A lot of the people that we've talked about have been lucky enough to message on Instagram, like Leandro and Steve the bartender, and they're really approachable. They're super, super nice, and I'm nowhere near their level of stardom, but I love it when people reach out to me and ask me questions on how I how do you do this or how do you garnish with this or what's your opinion on this or that or do you like this cocktail? I love that kind of stuff. It's super, super fun for me. It makes me feel like I'm connecting with people on a better level than just a dude that randomly throws out a picture. So if you're ever questioning something or you run across my page or you want to ask me anything, feel free to contact me anytime. I'm an insomniac. I never sleep, so I'm always around. (laughs) Hit me up whenever and we can chat about whatever it is that you want to chat about.
1: Oh, thanks. Thanks, Abby. Now, I have to, just to to follow that up, I have to totally agree with you about what you said about the cocktail community on Instagram. I, I honestly think that the the cocktail community within Instagram specifically has kind of renewed my faith in, in the internet because obviously like this year with the pandemic and with, you know, the forthcoming election and everything, it's kind of bringing out the worst of everyone on the internet, but I cannot believe how incredibly kind. I mean, the fact that I just reached out to you and you were so willing to jump on my podcast and I've had that experience with a couple other people. I, I honestly couldn't believe how nice everyone on instagram within the cocktail community is so um it's been that's been a really really nice experience and everyone who's interested should give ebby a follow for sure well thank you (laughs) all right well thank you so much for joining on this week's episode i'd love to have you back again sometime and i hope you have a good rest of your week
0: thank you so much and yeah i'm down to hop back on anytime.
1: Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to this week's episode of Gin and Beer. and a special thanks to Ebby I had such a nice time chatting to him and hearing about his journey through teaching himself how to make cocktails and the experiences that he's had on Instagram. As I said before, please, if you are on Instagram, go follow at Ebby Dranks. That's E-B-B-Y-D-R-A-N-K-S. He is an absolute delight on Insta. And... Pretty much the usual spiel. Please reach out if you have any requests for drinks that you would like covered on the show or if you would ever like to be a guest on the show. You can find me on email at gin and at show at gmail.com. The website is gin and beer The podcast is found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to to podcasts, but you probably already knew that because you're listening to this right now. I'm on Instagram at Gin and Barrett Show and then Twitter at Gin and Barrett Pod. And I think that's pretty much it. I will chat to you guys next week. Cheers.